This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Five-hour tea with caffeine from Green Tea Leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea. Caffeine from Green Tea Leaves. Release your natural sight. From the makers of Five-Hour Energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Calm. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you once again without co-host Andy Bailey. He continues to just mess up his priorities. Something about he needs to study for law school midterms. Blah blah blah. Uh, he needs to get his life straightened out, but. As we keep our season preview train rolling, since we are so damn close to the start of the NBA season, I am very excited to be joined by Jeff Siegel, a writer for The Step Back and Peachtree Hoops. And as you might have guessed from that Peachtree Hoops affiliation, he is here to talk about the 2017-2018 Atlanta Hawks. How are you doing tonight, Jeff? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing spectacular. I'm ready to talk about some Hawks, and I, I told this to you before we jumped on. I'm irrationally excited to watch what should be a, a fairly bad team. Wherever you go, however you go, for energy on the go, it's got to be five-hour energy. It works fast. It works long. It tastes good. And with zero sugar and four calories, there's nothing holding you back. Fits your pocket, fits your backpack, fits your on-the-go life, whether you're going to work, going on vacation, or just going out with friends. Five-Hour Energy. Energy on the go. For more information, visit 5hourenergy.com. Oh, yeah. This team is not going to be good, and the point of it is not to be good, but it's going to be interesting to watch. They've got a lot of young guys who are, they're not really relying on to be superstars in the future, but if they could you know, push it forward a little bit and you know, show some things this year that would go a long way toward, you know, the next great Hawks team. We're allowed to call this a rebuild, right? Like I know Tra- GM Travis Schlank, uh, and I'm probably butchering his name beyond belief because I suck at pronunciations, but he doesn't want to use the word rebuild. He talked about they're investing in their future, this nice hedge against, oh, we're not trying to compete now, but we want guys who will be competitive, but we're also not tanking. Uh, but we can we can call this what it is. Like this is a thorough, like let's basically start from scratch and, and let's rebuild. Yes, this is a rebuild. This is not a, they're not trying to really be competitive. That's sort of a smokescreen that both the owner, Tony Ressler, and Schrank, and I think Budenholzer as well, has used just sort of in, in interviews and stuff like, oh, yeah, we're going to be really competitive. We're going to try to, you know, we're, we're going to try to win. It's like, of course, you know, the players are going to try to win because everybody's trying to play for their next contract. You know, there's a whole bunch of guys who are either on one year deals or two year deals with an option, and a bunch of guys who, you know, are looking to get paid in the next couple of years. So they're not, none of the players are going to tank. Like you never see that, but really like this is, 
this is not going to be a competitive team. This team is going to put up like 92 to 95 points a game. I mean, it's going to be really bad and it's just, but that, that's the whole point of the, of the team that that's what they're trying to do. You know, their best asset on the entire team is their own draft pick that's coming at the end of this year. And that is, that's the goal of this year is to get that draft pick as high as possible. I mean, they might wind up and you mentioned this before we went on, you might wind up, you probably should wind up with, you know, the Houston pick and then you're going to get the hope, hopefully again, the Minnesota pick that's lottery protected. So if you go in there with three first round picks this year, and I think the GM even pointed to it, they have five first round picks in the next two drafts, which is just, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's good. That's great. Those are good building block starting points. Yeah, that's exactly what you got to look for when you're when you're trying to rebuild. Having your own first round picks like almost isn't even enough these days. You have to have multiple first round picks from other teams from whatever kind of trades that you can make. I mean, those that Minnesota pick is lottery protected the next three years. It came from the Adrian Payne trade, who's now a two way player in in Orlando. So that was a great trade for Atlanta. And then uh, let's just clarify two way contract and not this two way superstar. I know a right. lot of the listeners will get confused. Yeah, not a two-way two superstar Adrian like Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> he's a two-way player. Literally, like part, you know, very little NBA experience and a lot of G League experience this year for Adrian Payne. So that worked out fa- famously for Atlanta. Um, and then they've got that uh, the Houston pick that's top three protected this year from uh, from when they picked up uh, Jamal Crawford from the the Clippers earlier in the summer, and they just cut him because they don't even need. The, uh, they don't need what he brings to the table, so they bought him out, and they'll just take that cap hit most of, most of it this year and a little bit next year. That was they did. I'm notoriously mad for the anyone who listens or follows me, which is not many people, but notoriously angry that they lose Al Horford for nothing. And then I thought the same thing was going to happen to Paul Millsap. They did well to just get a first round pick out of that because those were two players. And it's not again, it's not on the current regime necessarily because that sort of switched over this summer. But to lose. What are let's call them two top twenty-five, top thirty players for nothing? Like it's just kind of disastrous when you know they're free, and especially because they were involved in trade rumors. That was something I I just couldn't get over, and I was very silent about it over the offseason because it's like, oh, you know, they got a first-round pick out of Paul Millsap's departure. Well, yeah, they got a first-round pick out of Paul Millsap's departure, but it wasn't because of the way the contracts and everything were structured. He literally that that first-round pick didn't literally come in for Paul Millsap. Like right. he wasn't actually part of that three team trade. It's a little weird, but essentially the cap space that he vacated by leaving allowed them to take on Crawford's contract and get that first round pick. So I guess you could sort of say that he was he was part of that, you know, he did get net a first round pick, sort of, but that was a little bit weird. But it is it's a strange sort of they're they're in a strange they were in a strange place with Horford coming into last summer, Baysmore also, and they decided to retain Baysmore and then they decided to to get rid of Horford and bring in Dwight Howard, which obviously worked out incredibly poorly. Um, you know, in Baysmore, I was, I'm, I'm on the record saying they shouldn't have done the Baysmore thing, not just because last year went poorly, but like immediately, as soon as they signed him in 2016, I was like, that's not, that's not a good thing to do. You know, they have, you know, we know about Hawks University. We know about how they can develop wings, you know, very, very well, take bottom of the scrap pile wings and turn them into, you know, fifteen, twenty million dollar a year players. Why pay one of those guys that you developed when you know you can develop guys like that? On the bright side, they did not match Tim Hardaway Jr.'s four year, seventy one million dollar deal from the Knicks. Well that yeah, that was never gonna happen. Unless, I... you know, somebody had an aneurysm in their front office or something. Like that was never they were never, I don't think they ever considered that for five seconds. I think they took the full two days because they could to say, Oh, we're not gonna t- do this, but 
they I don't think I think within five minutes they were like, no, we're done. I would give them five seconds. I think was the Zach Lowe of ESPN.com had a report that they were thinking like four years, forty eight million dollars, and the Knicks yeah. came over the top by twenty three million, which is which is dumb. And anyone who uses the restricted free agent defense, it's it's just wrong. The Knicks gave out a two thousand sixteen contract in 2017 while the market was just shrinking before their eyes. So that was one of the more bizarre moves. But you're right that they do a good job of developing wings, and you're probably one of the few who disliked, I would think, the Kent Bazemore deal. Um, But there was a lot of everyone – I won't say everyone, but at least I know I was confused, and a bunch of other people ended up being confused. Like the market was just misread completely leading in from last summer to this summer. And I think the Bazemore deal was kind of safeguarded under that 2016 umbrella for the longest time until – I, he definitely he slumped off last year, which didn't help on the offensive end, uh, especially. And it, so his contract didn't look great, but it really wasn't until the 2017 free agent market unfolded that it looked truly horrid. Yeah, that, I think a lot of 2016 contracts look like that. Like, I think when Alan Crabb got paid, it was like, yeah, that's probably too much for Alan Crabb. And then you saw this summer, it's like, oh, man, Alan Crabb is one of the worst contracts in the league, even though, like, just, just because of the way market sort of fell off from 2016 to 2017, you know, guys like Evan Turner, we knew were going to be bad contracts immediately. But like the way, the way the 2017 market has come out and the way the 2018-19 markets look, you know, those contracts are just absolutely killer for the teams that they're on. Yeah, um, I shouldn't admit this, but I was, I was for the Allen Crab deal in 2016. You probably just described my Twitter timeline by the progression of how I viewed it. And I was one of the few who thought that Evan Turner might actually work in Portland. So all, people are probably wondering why they're listening to this podcast at all right now with those admissions. But uh, this is not a 2016 free agency podcast, but tangents are fun. Dennis Schroeder is now like he's the I mean, Atlanta kind of finds himself in a weird spot just because most teams, I would think, don't build start a rebuild and have all this money committed to two guys who they Ken Bazemore's not a cornerstone player like he's just he's not even really in their timeline anymore at his age um and then Dennis Schroeder like it's still kind of a wait and see situation yes he's he's only 24 but you already have him on his uh four four year extension which you know his isn't a bad deal what is it four years and 62 I think he's on um yeah he's four years 62 but he's got some he's got some incentives that if he hits this year pushes that cap hit up by about two million dollars so like he could be on like more of a you know four for seventy, which would you know maybe look a little bit worse. Right. I mean four for seventy for a starting point guard is probably whatever. But so but it's a weird spot because I don't think you can say oh he can be like the the face of this team or he can be the let's even say the one B or like the second guy on the team that we're striving to become. And I'm wondering what you kind of think is going to happen now that like they they've slowly but surely they've just ripped the safety nets out from under him like Al Horford was gone before last year they trade Corver midseason then then Millsap leaves and they begin this rebuild and you know the, the offense was okay when he played without Millsap last year I think uh I was looking it up beforehand NBA Wowie they pumped in like 105 points per 100 possessions not great not awful uh probably I think it's relative to what the Hawks were doing overall last season like you would have taken 105 points per 100 possessions from them because that's more than um, they average for the year but I'm just curious to see do you think he can kind of be this guy who's going to be from the ground up the the leader of this offense like just the man I mean he's going to have to be because they don't have anybody else who can do what he's doing so he's going to be the guy but it's going to be the guy on a 30 win team so is that does that count as really being the guy or is he you know I don't think he can be 
the one B or the you know the second best player on a on a solid team on a, even a playoff team, but you know he can be he can certainly lead this team to a thirty you know twenty five thirty win season. Maybe he can get a little bit better from where he is now. I mean he's got he's got all those he's got all the tools. He's incredibly fast. He might be one of the five or six fastest players in the league. You know, he almost led the league in drives per game last year other than Isaiah Thomas. I think he was second in the whole league in drives per game. But then he gets into the paint and he can't finish and he can't shoot when when guys go under screens. And he's not a very good passer. And he's sort of an inattentive defender, even though he's got these long arms and he's incredibly quick, like he, just like he is on the offensive end. That still translates. He's still incredibly fast on the defensive end, but it doesn't he, he doesn't tra- it doesn't really translate into into positive you know defensive contribution. So he's just. He's he's got all the tools and you want you know he has to take a step forward in so many different ways that he could take a step forward in just one of those he would be you know a top 20 point guard which would be fine that's better than where he is now which he's probably like you know maybe 28th to 25th in the league and you know in terms of starting point guards uh, you know so it's not he, he's just he's got so much to move forward that he can pick any one of those. And if one of them can go forward, that would be great. And if he can move all of them forward, now we're talking about something real. The, the drives are interesting. And it it seems in the preseason that the Hawks are just running a bunch of these like five out lineups, these offensive schemes, and that's going to help him because he's not, uh, he shot okay on drives, but you're right. He's not a spectacular finisher around the rim. He shot under 56% inside three feet last year, which is not very good. He doesn't draw a ton of fouls on those drives. Uh, His assist percentage on those drives was not, that great either but if you're gonna have four guys around him um on the perimeter three of them you know if you're gonna have Dwayne Dedman just drag himself out of the paint like he's not he shot some jumpers uh over the course of his career some of which went in but he's not going to be that three-point guy but if you're just going to clear the paint for him it'll it'll make it a lot easier and I don't know that he'll ever be you know his speed is the weapon in itself so if you get by someone his his man and then there's not really help behind him that that's going to be a big deal and would help him a lot just because he's not the guy that you're going to rely on to finish in traffic, to finish over these guys with that vast array of floaters. And, you know, again, he's only 24. Uh, he's entering his fifth season in the league, and it's only his second uh, as the everyday starter. So maybe he develops these things. But I have to think that this model, and I'm not necessarily saying the Hawks' offense will be good because, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it most likely will not be. But being around uh, within those types of lineups where there's just so much space being created, which it seemed like that was a little something the Hawks struggled with last year. That could be an individual boon for him throughout this entire season. Yeah, I think you'll see him put up numbers. I don't know how much how you know how much you can really put behind the numbers that he'll he will, you know, put up. But he'll you know, the, the offense will be a little more spaced out this year. That's about that's probably the best, the only way in which it is going to be better is that the shooting will be a little bit better. They're going to play guys like Ursan Ilyasova, Luke Babbitt, who can all, you know, if they can't do anything else, they can shoot. And so that'll help Dennis in terms of getting into the lane and fit. And hopefully, you know, he'll, he'll, you know, have a, a tick up in his finishing this year. But, you know, it's whether that can, whether that can translate when you don't have shooters at every position. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, you know, I have to see it before I believed it. It would be nice if Kent Bazemore kind of regained his three-point stroke would, would help a lot. And he's a, another one. Actually, I would like to see a lot. I, it, it doesn't – again, he's 28 years old, and there are guys who should get minutes before him. But Luke Babbitt, I would just love put him at the power forward, and let's see him do what the, the Miami Heat did last year. Like his average shot distance I think was closer to 22 feet last year. Like just give him the green light from 26 feet and in or even 28 feet and just let it let it fly. Maybe that helps you as well. That's just me. 
I don't think that that's ne- that doesn't advance their development, but I'm just all for if you're going to run these five out lineups or where you're going to have four sh- try and have four shooters on the floor at all time, maybe try and play really fast and and just do those driving kicks like that. Uh, but Kent Bazemore was my main point. Uh, he's weird for this team too. He has three years and fifty plus million dollars left on his deal. Do you think this is a situation where he's not going to be? meandering in and out of the trade rumor mill because the Hawks aren't really in a position or should they be to sweeten that contract or do you think if maybe he gets off to a nice start and he's putting up some numbers on a team that is gonna I can assume and you can definitely point me out if I'm wrong they're gonna rely on him to be that kind of secondary playmaker even more than they tried to last year that perhaps they're hoping that becomes a a movable deal because this is this 28 year old he has three years left on his deal. I know a lot of people aren't big on timelines, but by the time his contract's up or by the time the Hawks are ready to going to be good again, he'll be on the wrong side of 30 anyway. Yeah, I mean if they if he can regain some of that secondary playmaking ability, that would go a long way toward making his deal a little more movable. I mean, this is somebody's going to need to step into that role in some way because there's no I mean, you look literally across the roster, there's no above average passers on the entire roster. Maybe you could argue like Mike Muscala is above average for his position, but mm-hmm. not you're not running an offense through him. You know, Dennis is not a, a great passer either. You know, none of the none of the point guards are passers. Delaney's not a passer either. You know, Bembry might be a passer depending on you know he, you know where you where you see him, but like you know there he he was in and out of the G League last year, and I don't know exactly what what they envision for him this year. I hope you you know you, we see a lot of that, but. You know, Bazemore, if he can regain some of that playmaking ability and doesn't, you know, turn the ball over, you know, most of the time when he drives, which is, you know, a problem. Um, and if he can regain even just a, a few percentage points on that jump shot, then, yeah, you know, you're you're looking at something that, you know, you're looking at maybe a 12, 13 million dollar a year player. And so you have to attach a smaller asset to get rid of his, his bigger contract. But at least it's not, you know, it's not unmovable. Yeah, I think when you look at the bad deals throughout the NBA now, as a result of that 2016 Bonanza, his probably doesn't rank too highly on the immovable scale. Uh, you know, it's it looks better than Evan Turner's, that's for sure. It's not a Timothy Mozgov or Jan Mahimi situation. So if I get if you're right, if he's going to regain, if he can maybe he can score some points for them or create out of the pick and roll, maybe a spot up shooting improves. He was, I would say he was okay defensively last year. You know, if that kind of holds, maybe there's a contender that can talk themselves into a three and D. And I don't necessarily know what the team would be, but if they have some expirings or short terms that they can just send back to the Hawks, that would be interesting to explore. So I guess that would be, would make the question as, or my initial question, what it was trying to get to is, is do you think that this is a team that's going to want to move him like this season? Do you think that's going to be an active goal that they view him as? I don't want to say he's clogging in the pipeline, but they would rather give his minutes to a Bembry or just have more flexibility to play Torian Prince additional time. Yeah, I mean, if they if somebody will come to, comes to them with a decent offer, I think they'll they'll really think about it and they will you know probably end up moving him. But I, I don't I don't know what team is out there that would want that contract for three years at, at a, you know, a bloated number compared to the value that he brings onto the floor. But if there's, if somebody shows up and, and, you know, and, and wants, wants him and, and is willing to even just take him for, you know, without attaching maybe that Minnesota pick or something like that, then I think the Hawks really do have to think about that. Um, and as I mentioned before, well, Bembry and Prince, I guess are two players to talk about kind of together. I, 
everyone liked a lot what they saw from Prince last year. I'm more curious about Bembry because he seems like he could be very fun on defense. It seems like he might even have some an extra layer of playmaking that we haven't seen or that has been untapped. And again, you've watched him way more than I have, so I could just be totally off base here. Are the Hawks even, like when he's on the floor, are they even going to encourage him or let him shoot threes, or is this just going to be, you know, a situation where they avoid it at all costs for him shooting from the perimeter? I think everybody is going to shoot on this team. If you're open, shoot. Like, that's the whole point of the of the, of the the offense at, at this point. I mean, even if Dwayne Dedman is spacing out to the corner and shooting threes, why can't Bembry shoot threes? Like, let's just have everybody out there shooting. I think that's, that's pretty much what they're going to do. They're going to put the ball in his hands a lot in that secondary in that that bench unit I think I mean I was watching the the Grizzlies game last night and he's you know he's got he's got the ball in his hands and he's making passes and he's he's one of the better passers on the team and he can he can operate out of the pick and roll and at a, at a higher level than I think a lot of people might might think given that he didn't play that much last year the shot is not good I mean he just airballed a corner three last night like it wasn't you know it wasn't even particularly close you know he'll have to to work on that and you know, hopefully he can he can get that going. But like, if he's if he's also like a not if he's if he can't shoot, but the rest of the team around him can. Like, I think you could put the ball in his hands and sort of mitigate that a little bit. So it's well, you know, we'll see exactly how they use him. But I really I do think that he's a solid passer, a solid pick and roll, sort of secondary pick and roll guy, but could be a primary for a bench for a bench unit if if necessary. And he you know he's a good decision maker. He rotates really well on defense. That's something that really pops out on the tape like he just he anticipates really well you know you can see his his college experience when he plays you know and 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 the way he the way he rotates defensively the way he can sort of sniff out uh pick and pops and he'll rotate over from the weak side corner and take that pass away you know stuff like that i think he's a smart guy i think button really likes him and i think you know i think he will will see a lot of time this year because you know again this is a terrible team so you might as well see what you got in pretty much everybody I was completely just caught off guard with what they've done w- with him in, in the preseason. Like I just when I saw him have the like having the ball a lot in his hands, like that's not something I even like realized or thought was an option leading in from the off season. I clearly didn't watch him in college, and as you said, he barely played last year. But then you look and he's averaging seven point four assists per thirty six minutes in the preseason. Again, such a small sample size, but you even said it. He has the ball in his hands a lot more, and that's I, I know the Hawks are kind of thin in the secondary playmaking department, but I never. I never would have seen this coming. Like you asked me a couple, like a week ago, I, n- I don't even think I would have named him as like the top four or five guys that they would turn to to kind of generate in the half quarter run pick and roll, just have the ball in their hands at all. Yeah, I mean he's he's surprised me even this this uh, this preseason with the way he can pass and the way he's finding the guys in the weak side corners off pick and rolls and like he's just I think he's he's a high level passer and he can you know hopefully he can continue to to build the rest of his game around that so that they can really use him as a, as a secondary playmaker. Uh, Torian Prince, a lot of people consider the more promising prospect. Are, are you right there with him? It seems like these two guys can do a lot of the same things defensively, and there's going to be a greater hope, obviously, for Torian Prince's outside shot. It was 32.4% last year as a rookie, but he was, he was taking them. Um, and he showed, I think, later on in the year, it looked like he could knock down some of those shots. And he was really – he was kind of – he was – he. I don't even know what the word would be, but but he he was kind of a grinder on the defensive end, and that's kind of you know these three and D things like that's the buzzword, that's the 
highly coveted commodities is even if they're not there yet, but you can kind of see the silhouette of one. Everyone wants the guy who's going to be able to switch a little bit on defense or just handle defending those bigger wings and then maybe stretch the floor a little bit on offense. And I don't think that he'll ever be uh, this high-end guy in, in maybe in any one category. Like he's not – I don't know if he's someone that you consider as th- this Hawks guy looking at them and saying, oh, he's a legitimate primal building block. But he seems like maybe he could be on the closer to a Jay Crowder trajectory where he's like this great universally complimentary role player and he's going to knock down some threes, but he's going to basically play his ass off on defense as well. Yeah, I think that's you've pretty much nailed it with that. I think Prince and Bembry have a lot of similarities. Prince is bigger, which is great for the Hawks because they've never had a big enough wing to contend with like LeBron and Durant and Kawhi Leonard and guys like that. You know, those are the, you know, those are the hardest wings to find is guys who can play defense at that size. But I think I think Prince could eventually get there. He's he's one of those guys who has a bunch of relatively average to slightly below average skills. And if he could just take a leap in one or two areas, that would really help him. But if even if he doesn't, he's already like a relatively solid role player. You know, if if the shot can move up a little bit, if he can you know get a little bit bigger, a little bit better defensively. You know, coming out of Baylor, he was playing a zone mostly because of the way that that Baylor plays. And so he's, you know, he's still getting used to playing NBA man-to-man defense. But when he gets stuck in just like a straight isolation against some of these guys, you know, he can hold his own. He's a big dude. He's relatively quick. He's, you know, and so it's just he can he can do it. He's got the physical skills and he's got the the big profile that Bembry just doesn't quite have. Bembry's more of a, you know, get through screens, guard guys like Clay Thompson, stuff like that. Whereas Prince, I think, would would get stuck a little bit guarding guarding guys like Clay, but. You know, Bembry's way too small to guard the bigger wings. So I think it's a, that's a really nice pairing defensively in terms of what they can do, you know, on, on various matchups. But uh, And then Prince has a little bit of that secondary playmaking. You know, it's again, it's one of his sort of average to below average skills for his age and his, his experience level. But it's not, you know, it's a, nothing pops with him other than just, you know, how big he is and how, you know, just his physical profile yet. But other than that, like, I think he just... He doesn't really pop in any area, but he he has a lot of solid skills that he can he can advance over the, these next three years of his of his rookie deal. Do you think he can kind of be? And maybe Jay Crowder really hasn't had a shot to do this, and well, he absolutely hasn't had a chance. But do you think he can be a little bit more self sufficient than Crowder on the offensive end? Like we've seen Crowder develop his handle nicely, where if he can pump on drives or if he can just attack off the dribble, like you can trust him to make shots. But you're talking about how you have he has a little bit of the playmaker in him. He did shoot 35.5 percent from three over his last 22 games last year, so that's something defenses will respect and that opens up the opportunity to again pump and drive or just attack right off the catch but does he maybe have the capacity and how likely would he be able to explore that with the Hawks of running some pick and roll and you know you're not gonna I'm not saying bring the ball up the court but if you're gonna reference that this search for a secondary playmaker do you think he can actually turn into something more than a Jay Crowder in that department yeah I mean we're gonna see that this year because They've got so many. They've got 82 games worth of experimentation to work with. So let's just see what we can get out of Prince, out of whoever. You know, I think Prince will. I think he will bring the ball up at times, whether Dennis is in the game or not. I think they'll give him. They'll give him free reign to take pull up jumpers in transition. I, we saw a couple of those last night. I think like it was just. He's very. They'll give him the leash, and if he's good, then they'll continue to let them let him go on that leash. And if he's not, then they'll you know, they'll rein him in. But I think this is the year of just mass experimentation because, you know, what else are you going to do? 
And so this is, you know, I think we will see Prince run, you know, a few hundred pick and rolls over the course of the year and see how, wow. how that works and how it goes and, you know, what he, what can he do when, with the ball in his hands and can he pull up for, you know, one of those mid-range, can he pull up off the pick and roll for a mid-range jumper? Can he pull up for three off of the dribble? Like that would be a nice skill to have, but we don't, you know, this is the year to experiment and see if he can do those kinds of things or even see if it's something that they would want from him down the line because he's one of the guys, I think probably along with Schroeder just because of his contract, Prince and Bembry and, of course, John Collins and then whoever they draft at the end of this year, those five guys are sort of the the building blocks at this point for the, you know, 2020, 2021 Hawks that are that might actually be, you know, somewhat competitive. Like, so let's, you know, let's see what all these guys can do. You know, put the ball in John Collins' hands and see if he can run a pick and roll just for fun. Like, why not? Oh, like, I let's love just love that. Yeah, let's run some four or five pick and roll with him and, and Deadman or him and Muscala with a pick and pop. Like, let's just like this is the year to just do all the things that you would never do if you were trying to win games. You know, and so like I know like Budenholzer is going to want to, you know, really you know, he's going to want to win because he's a coach. And that's what you know, that's what coaches always want. The players are going to want to win. The players are going to want to be successful. But if, if Schwenk can can convince the players and Bud to really to do this, like let's let's get nuts. Like let's th- this is the point. Like let's let's do this. Let's just, you know, go nuts and see see how it goes. And it's funny. I say before you started talking those fantastic points you made, I'm saying, well, not necessarily bring up the floor, but if you, <laughs> I look at the Hawks' depth chart, it's like, well, if, if they're going to experiment, they should absolutely let them bring themselves off the floor because there's just nobody after Schroeder. I, I mean, like, they have Malcolm Delaney technically, but, like, he's not that guy. So, of course, Bazemore and Prince, and as you said, even Bembry, and then you're throwing out Colin. So I, I think I underestimate like how experimentative this team needs to be. Do you think it's, and this is probably a two-part issue, do you think that they should almost be remade in the image of the Nets from last year? Not in the way that they're bottoming out because they don't have picks, but it was a free-for-all. Like you saw Trevor Booker bring the ball up the floor a lot last year, and maybe you do just give John Collins the green light to do that. And then the next part of that would be, you know, buttonholes are not only is he not Schlank's guy, like he had to relinquish some control when they brought him in do, do you think that this organization is on the same page to that extent i think so first question is about about the nets i think it'll look a little bit different but it might be similar in terms of overall sort of idea and, and the overall philosophy behind it i think well kenny atkinson came from atlanta and so right and he's he's the head coach in brooklyn and so he's he comes out of that same mold from budenholzer and from you know you know in the in the popovich the Popovich coaching tree. And so I think, you know, if, if, if Atkinson can go to, to Brooklyn and really experiment with a, with a bad team, then maybe we will see that out of Budenholzer. That's, that's a good point that I, that I hadn't really considered, but I think the nets were really three happy and they were just, they just launched their threes. I don't think the Hawks are going to be quite that way, mostly because Dennis Schroeder isn't that, isn't that guy. And when he has the ball, he wants to get to the rim and he's not a great passer. He's not a particularly willing passer. When he gets into the paint, he really looks for his own shot. So I'm not sure that the the shooting profiles will look the same. But I think in terms of experimentation, it's going to be fairly wild. And if it's not, then they're sort of wasting wasting the time, the precious time that they have, where there's no pressure to win. And you can you can lean into some of these experiments and just see how they go. In terms of whether Budenholzer has sort of the backing of management and ownership, I think. 
I mean, without really being in those meetings and knowing anything, because the Hawks are notoriously incredibly tight-lipped about anything, mm-hmm. um, I think Budenholzer has the backing of ownership, has the backing of management at this point. Whether that changes, whether Budenholzer even, you know, gets antsy and wants to leave because things aren't going well and he doesn't want to be around a losing team, you know, that's possible too. He's been, you know, he came from San Antonio walked into a team the second year they won 60 games like he's he's a winner and he wants to win and so it's going to be you know there might be a little bit of a of a struggle internally for Budenholzer to say like I don't really you know I could get another job in a place where maybe you know you know never you never know maybe the New Orleans job opens up at some point and he wants to go coach Anthony Davis and maybe you know, bring back Boogie Cousins, stuff like that. You know, there might be a place for him where he he voluntarily decides to step back from the Hawks. You know, but I don't think I don't think at this point that anybody's anybody internally in the Hawks are thinking about about removing Budenholzer from his post at this point. Well, I guess it would be um, well. One actually to your the previous question about the Nets. I hope they're at least. Do you think the Hawks they were tenth in pace last year? Or are we going to see them build upon that ranking this year? Yeah, I think okay, we good. will. I think we will only literally because Dwight Howard's not on the team anymore. That's a and fantastic point. <laughs> let's just, you know, you might as well run. You've got athletes. You've got Bazemore, who likes to run. You've got John Collins, who will dunk on anybody. And, you you know, you've got Prince and Bembry, who both sort of like to run a little bit. And then Schroeder, of course, is like the third or fourth fastest person, in, you know, with a basketball probably on the planet. And so, you know, there's – you might as well get out and run. And so I think they will because Dwight's not holding everybody up play, while you're playing four on five for the first five, six seconds of the shot clock every every possession. Right, and Dwayne Dedman can run too. But for him, you to imagine going from what San Antonio does on offense to then all of a sudden you're on a Hawks team that's probably angling, I would think. And that I was just trying to get confirmation on that. But they, they should probably rank in the top five or seven of possessions used per 48 minutes. Like just imagine the the, the shell shock from that. He's, he's long and lean and likes to run too, but I just find that like that's just such a 180 stylistically. Yeah, so I wonder. So the 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 style might be a little bit more similar than than you might expect because well, not just because Budenholzer came out of the Popovich right. coaching tree, but because the the Hawks did like to play fast and they like to play fast to get the ball up the court as quickly as possible. But then when they get into their offense, the offense takes a little bit uh, takes a little more time to to run. Uh, I actually wrote about this at Peachtree Hoops. Like, what does playing fast mean? Budenholzer has talked about like, oh, we want to play fast. We want to play with purpose. What, what does that actually mean? I'm not sure that means like, let's get out and transition and try to find transition threes and layups. I think that means get, get into the offense within four or five seconds of the, of the shot clock, but then run the offense down to the last, you know, five to eight seconds. So I'm not sure that the increased pace will show up in the pace statistic, but I think like if we could track like how long does it take for the ball to get above, you know, past half court? I think they would rank pretty highly in that, in that, you know, in that statistic, which we we don't even have. But if we did, like, I think that's where that's what they mean by playing fast, not necessarily get out and transition all the time. Well, I'm gonna let you know. I'm gonna be really upset if that's what it means. That'll be very dis- That was one of the intrigues I had for this team was watching them fly up and down the floor just because Schroeder is so fast. And you talk about him being th- one of the three or four fastest guys in the game. I'm, as you said that, I was like trying to think in my head. John Wall is might be ahead of him. I don't know. Like, do you put Russell Westbrook, who just seems like more? I'm not, is he faster than Schroeder? Is he just more of a bulldozer than Schroeder? I would. I would probably say. I think Westbrook is functionally faster because he's just such a freight train with the ball. But you might as like you could. 
Like, I'm not sure if you lined them up side by side and did a 40 yard dash shooter might win. But like, once you have, like, once you have the ball and you have to contend with, if you step in front of this guy, you are going to go through the basket stanchion. I think that's where, I think that's where Russell sort of surpasses shooter in terms of functional speed. Um, and, and then I'm trying to think, I mean, who else would be on that list? Like, I mean, Isaiah Thomas is really fast, but I don't think it's him. Uh, yeah, mean, Isaiah Thomas is, is, yeah, he might fit in that. He might fit in that mold, in that same Schroeder mold, where he's just got a, a really solid first step, and he can, you know, he can really get get to the rim. I mean, he was first in drives per game last year, but then, you know, they were running some really more handoffs and pick and roll for him. Whereas Schroeder, you know, a lot of his drives literally just came off of like a spot up catch and just running right by his guy. You know, but you know, outside of Wall and Westbrook, I'm not sure that anybody's really out there that's faster than Schroeder with the ball. Yeah, I mean, he's fast. Um, and <laughs> since I diverted from the Coach Bud topic, I, maybe it'll be, and that's more so what I was wondering. Maybe it'll be a situation where we'll know if he is on the same page or on board with what the Hawks are doing when we look at his rotations. Because if you're going to see Kemp more play 35 minutes a game, you're going to see Deadman get a lot of minutes over Zach Collins or, and even throw Mike Muscala into that, then it's kind of, and you know, if you're going to play Ursan Ilyasovia a bunch, instead of giving Torian Prince some time to dabble at the four, as I think he should, maybe that would be kind of a sign of, because you, you have to imagine, especially with Schlank saying they're investing in the future, that the, the mandate has been, even though they're saying we want to be competitive, like you have to like prioritize the kiddies. Yeah, and they will. I think I think they will. I think you can look at the preseason rotations and sort of see. You know, obviously in preseason he's playing he's playing a longer rotation and more guys are getting time so that they know you know who's good and who's not going into the year. But I think we're going to see a lot of Bembry, a lot of Prince, a lot of John Collins. You know, and we're not going to we're they're not going to get stuck in 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 the in the back end of the rotation like that. I mean, Torian Prince is going to start. I'm pretty sure he's going to be the starting three. He's the only three on the roster other than Nico Persino. And Persino, you know, may not make the team. I think he will, but he, you know, there's a possibility that he's not even on the team. So Prince is, will definitely get his minutes because he's going to start. He started down the stretch last year, started the, pre, the, the playoff series against Washington. So he's definitely going to get his minutes and get his starts. And, you know, I think Bembry will, will step up behind Bazemore and Bazemore won't play more than, you know, maybe 20, 28 30 minutes a game just because you know you he wants to play because of his contract and just because he wants to prove people wrong and of course playing him might make him more tradable which would be you know good for the hawks as well so i think you i don't think we'll see anybody play much more than maybe 30 33 minutes a game maybe schroeder will be the only one but even then like they kind of want to see what they have with malcolm delaney because he's going to be a free agent after the year they've got quinn cook who i think is pretty interesting just to see what they have there you know you might as well this is the year of, of might as well. Like, let's just try things. You know, let's try it. Let's play play three-point guards just to see if it works. Like, you never know. What if you trip over something? I mean, I, I wouldn't expect them to do that, and I don't expect that works. You know, talk to Phoenix about how that works. But, you know, I don't think, I don't think they're going to do that. But, like, those kind of ideas, those kind of off-the-wall ideas that you would never run in real life, this is not real life because this is a, just a, an experiment of a, of a terrible team that you can just kind of do whatever you want with. So I do think we're going to see a lot of the kids, and I real—I mean, obviously, I hope we see a ton of them. Uh, well, that would be another like corollary to the to the Brooklyn rebuild is just you talk about guys who didn't Brooklyn didn't have anyone who averaged over thirty minutes a game, and Atkinson went like 10, 12 guys deep every night, and I guess that's the setup Atlanta will kind of mirror. And it. it's it's a little bit out of necessity because it's like you said they want to get looks 
at some of these other guys, and you do have you have those veteran glue guys who are there. Uh, my favorite of of whom is Dwayne Dedman. We have to talk about him because I just I was such a fan of him in San Antonio. He's just he's he's serviceable, and if he's going to shoot from the perimeter on Atlanta, like I'm here for it. Like he's not shooting well from three uh, in the preseason, but we're talking about Dwayne Dedman. Like he shot threes in the preseason. Like that's actually happened. Uh, I'm just here for it. I I just I love more of what he does defensively because when we talk about the bigs who don't shoot threes or these non-unicorns like you you have to still on defense be able to defend almost like a win a wing excuse me and he's very he just has this switchability to him uh he's long and and he kind of has a little bit of the the Nerlens Noel in him where it looks like he teleports sometimes on defense because he's in these spots so quick and it's not just he needs to be this stationary rim protector you need to keep him within 10 12 feet of the basket to make sure that he's going to make his rotations like this is a dude that will close out like this isn't Nikola Jokic syndrome, where part of what hampered him on defense last year is that he needed to close out for the Nuggets because they were in such disarray. Uh, I I love I I just love Dwayne Dedman. I was so happy he went to the Hawks because they kind of have to play him. I know there's Muscala and you want to get Collins some time, but this is a guy he was he wasn't in and out of the rotation necessarily in San Antonio, but his just playing time wasn't guaranteed. Like it hinged on Pau Gasol being injured or whether they were going to bring Gasol off the bench and, and things, the variables like that. We're going to get a chance. It looks like to really see him play some serious minutes here. And I'm, I'm very excited to see what he could be defensively. And the Hawks to that point could be, if they're going to surprise people in the East in any way, you have to imagine it's going to be on the defensive end in part because of, they have some nice front court pieces there who should be able to get them some, some stops, no matter, you know, you have a rim protector in Deadman. Maybe John Collins becomes that nice shot swatter. He's even a guy who hustles his ass off defensively, too. Uh, so that might be where they're going to surprise you most. And I think if it happens, Dwayne Deadman's just going to be a huge part of that. Yeah, for sure. I think he's been he's been the biggest surprise for me from from uh, from preseason so far. Just you know, obviously, just the fact that he's even willing to space out to the corner and shoot those threes, even if they don't go in, like a, that's just amazing to see. Um, you know, especially after living through a year of Dwight Howard last year. Uh, but you know, I think you you get the feeling from his last year in San Antonio that he got on Pop's bad side because he would have games that were decent, and then he would just find himself totally out of the rotation at certain points, and you were just like when the Hawks signed him. You know, you you don't know what's happening behind the scenes in San Antonio, and obviously something must have happened where Pop called Bud or Bud called Pop and was like, "Hey, we're thinking about Deadman. What do you think?" And obviously Pop gave him the go ahead to do it. I I mean, I I would imagine that that conversation happened. So I would think that Pop liked him, but for some reason he wasn't really getting the consistent playing time. But he's going to get a ton of playing time this year. He's going to be the starting center. He's going to play a majority of of minutes, you know, at that spot because. You know, again, Muscala will play his his standard backup center minutes. He's like a perfect backup center. He's not good enough to push the starter, but he's not so bad that you're like hemorrhaging points or or not able to score when he's on the floor. He's he's really he's just good enough to be a backup. And I don't think they're going to see a lot of John Collins at the five this year. You know, we'll see. No, you know, again, it's it's. Well, how'd you break my heart like that? It's an experimental year, but I think with Deadman and Muscala, I think there's going to they're not going to be a ton of of time for, for Collins at the five. They're going to try it because they might as well again. But I think it's 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 going to be a lot of Deadman. It's going to be a lot of Muscal. And I'm, I think Deadman will, you know, he'll have the chance. And this is it for him. If he can uh, if he can really do well, then he can opt out next year and, and make a lot of money somewhere, whether it's with Atlanta or not. 
here's what probably shouldn't be a question, and I'm hoping it's a tough one, but if it's too easy, then whatever. Who makes more threes next season, Dwayne Dedman or DeAndre Bembry? Oh, that's just kind of mean to Bembry, isn't it? That's well, really mean. I think Bembry will just because, I mean, he won't have the playing time, but, like, he's got to be – he'll be out there more. He'll, he'll be out on the perimeter more, during, you know, when he's out there. And he's – I mean, that's, that's a little mean to Bembry. I think he's at least, you know, somewhat – He's probably a better shooter, and he'll be out on the perimeter more than Deadman will be. So I think Bembry is the answer there. But you know, if it's not, then that means something went really wrong for for DeAndre. I think. Do you think it could be close? Is it that unruly of a, that mean spirited of a question that it won't even be? No, no, it's not mean spirited. It's just you know when you think about a shooting guard versus a center who's been in the league for a while and has never shot threes. You know, you think that the shooting guard would at least be able to to knock down more threes than the center, but. You know, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a weird world, and so you never know what uh, if if Deadman can find you know, Deadman will be open if he goes to the corner, and if he can knock those down, you know, you know, he'll he'll have the playing time to to pass Bembry in, in threes overall at least. Um, something that did catch me off guard about like Deadman is no, he's never shot threes, but he's had like these random small bursts of success on long twos, like eight percent of his shots in 2015 2016 came between 16 feet uh, and the three-point line, and he shot 35.7% on them. And then last year in San Antonio, uh, a smaller share came from came from that distance. He was at, I think it was like four and change percent, and he shot 45-plus percent on them. Again, really small samples, and I only actually know this because I wrote an in-depth piece for him for NBA Math like in the middle of the year because he was so shocking. So maybe it's not uh, – I'm not even relating it to the question, but maybe it's not like like – Perhaps he turns into something where these guys aren't going to leave him alone, and you can't cheat off the corners on him because he's all of a sudden shooting. You know, if he gets 28, 30% of his threes, like, like that's a problem for defenses. Yeah, I mean, if, if, and that'll open up the floor for everybody else. I mean, when, when you think about what, what this team was last year with Howard and Millsap even, like Millsap can shoot threes, but it wasn't his preferred thing to do. So bo- both of those guys were, were closer to the rim. And if Deadman can shoot, and Ilyasova we know will, will shoot, and John Collins, you know, we'll see what he can do from outside. And we know Mike Scala can shoot. That's your four bigs right there who all will space the floor and at least be out there. And you have to sort of contend with them. And that's going to open up a lot of lanes for Bembry, for Prince, for Tyler Dorsey, if he gets some minutes, for obviously for Dennis Schroeder. Uh, and we haven't really talked much about Mike Muscala, but his free agency deal was good. That Like he's just this, he can space the floor at the five and he's, uh, he can be okay as a stationary rim protector. If you're going to get that for two years and ten million, like why not? And I think, but uh, you, I think I'm actually stepping on toes what you said. But he's he's probably an above average passer for a guy who's going to spend most of his time at center, and and that's that's another really interesting piece uh, to look at. I'm interested to see how he fares in this offense that seems like it's going to emphasize uh, more space and maybe just a little bit more freedom for everyone that's that's involved. You know, Schroeder is going to get. Um, into the lane, and he's going to look to score, but you don't have to worry about placating a Dwight Howard with post-touches. You're not trying to get uh, feed Paul Millsap every possession down. There's, it's going to have this equal, uh, it's going to have this equal opportunity feel to it, and I'm very interested to see how he might perform in it. Yeah, I think Muscala, when you, I think if you were really in-depth watching this team last year, and I don't know why you would be unless you write about them, but if you were, you would see that when Muscala came off the bench for Dwight, the offense just flowed way better. It just it, maybe the the numbers I don't think even really bore that out, but it just looked better. It looked like people were were cutting and moving, and and you could 
You could run a few little things through Muscala as a handoff guy, as a passer. He is a, probably a, a, a better passer than most centers in the league right now. And he's, you know, I know he really likes it in Atlanta. And I think he's, you know, that may be why he took, you know, relatively a smaller deal than maybe he could have gotten elsewhere. But, you know, he'll have the chance to opt out after this year and, and get paid again if he's able to really either push Deadman for minutes, maybe, or just, you know, show what he can do a little bit more now that, that Dwight's out of town. But I think he's, you know, he's sort of that perfect guy on both ends. He's just good enough to where he's really serviceable, but not, you know, he, he's not tricking anybody into believing he's a, a starting center at, at any level of and the I NBA. Get, and I guess he's going to get a ton of minutes too, because I, I come into this thinking there was going to be ample time for John Collins at the five. But if you think that they're going to give him some, some real spin at the four, and that's where he's going to spend a majority of his time after the preseason, uh, that there's a ton of minutes there for Mike Muscala because you don't need to play Miles Plumley at this point. Like you, you don't, you know, he's, he's dead weight. You're not trying to keep, you're not trying to make him a part of your future. And if, I guess if someone gets injured or if you just want someone else that you're hoping can be a nice rim runner out of the pick and roll, you throw him in there. But if John Collins is going to be a four this year or a lion's share of his minutes are going to come at the four, uh, there's going to be a lot of time available for Muscala. Yeah, I think so. And I think Collins will probably play the four this year. He'll just be more comfortable there. They'll be more comfortable putting him there until he can sort of, if he, if they decide to make him into a five someday, then they'll have to sort of beef him up physically and, and, and to, to get him there. But I think he'll, this year in particular, he'll play the majority of his minutes at the four. And Miles Plumley, like, if he never sees the floor the whole year and all they do is just ride his contract out over the next few years, like that wouldn't be the end of the world. But then there's like this small opportunity where they may throw him out there and try to improve his, his tradability a little bit. I mean, we keep saying he's one of the more untradable contracts, but he's been traded twice on this contract. So it's like, it can't be impossible to get rid of this guy. So, you know, you could, I, I hope they don't because they want to play the young guys and they want to play Muscala and they just want to play guys who, are better, but if they want to try to rebuild Plumlee's value, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be totally opposed to giving him a little bit of run at backup center. And even you know Muscala can because he can shoot a little bit, because he can pass a little bit, because he can handle the ball a little bit. He can actually play the four. He would play with Dwight every once in a while. He would play with Al Horford back when Al Horford was in Atlanta. You know he can he can sort of make shift some minutes at the four, especially because they have Ilyasova, they have Collins, and the the, the next four on the roster is like Torian Prince or something. So it's not, you know, maybe, maybe they do a little bit of that so that they get Muscala and, and Plumley a little bit of a few minutes together just to see if Plumley can rehab a little bit of his value. But I, I, if I would expect that Plumley won't play almost at all this year, really. Now, John Collins, are you as high on him as NBA Matt's founder and editor in chief, Adam Frommel, who we recorded a Nuggets podcast, uh, roughly a little bit more than 20, like two days, let's say, before you and I are discussing right now. And he took a Nuggets podcast and made it into a John Collins tangent for a good five minutes. Uh, probably not if he's that high on John Collins that he's taking Nuggets podcasts. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff to talk about with the Nuggets that if you're taking that and navigating toward John Collins, then, you know, maybe you're really high on John Collins or you're related to John Collins in some way. <laughs> but like... I think he, I, I don't you know Collins is going to be worth two or three highlights a game. He's gonna get lost on defense because that's what rookies do. And you know he's he's gonna be fine. He's gonna be really exciting. He's gonna if any time that somebody watches a Hawks highlight, he's gonna be involved or it's gonna be Schroeder just like running you know full speed down the court and missing a layup, which you know is gonna happen a lot. 
but, you know, Collins, he's super exciting and he plays with so much energy and he seems like just like one, you know, really good guy, good teammate is willing to do a lot of the dirty work. He, he'll pick and roll. And then if it doesn't work, he'll sprint out into that second pick and roll, something that obviously we didn't see a ton of with Dwight last year. Like he's, you know, he's just boundless energy and he can leap and he can do a lot of things. But in terms of how, you know, good he is or will be, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sold that he's going to be, that the, he's going to even be like the best player or the second best player on, on a good team, you know, when, when the Hawks are ready to be a good team. Now, some people are going to take this as an insult who haven't watched him and, and that's fine. Could you maybe see him being a taller, longer version of Trevor Booker? And if you want to say a better version, fine. But like, he looks like he just like the motor on him is just off the charts. And maybe he's the guy who's going to shoot. I mean, if he's going to play the four, and you said it, I don't know how many times I forced you to reset it in this podcast. But the, everyone on the Hawks is basically going to shoot threes, so he's going to get to experiment with that. And he just he seems like that workaholic. And like you said, with his commitment to out of the pick and roll, he's going to hustle on the glass too. Um, and that was when I did draft prep and was making comparisons like I just saw there was no similarities in the body type so I can't stress that enough I'm not even trying to insult him if you want to say it's like a a super rich man's uh, billionaires Trevor Booker like if that's what people like that's fine I just I see stylistically in terms of how much they hustle and how much it seems like both of their effectiveness is founded upon that hustle I kept coming back to him and that's ultimately what I rolled with because I couldn't find a good comparison for John Collins I think he's he's got a little more offensive play than 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 uh, than Booker does. I think he's somebody who you could at some point throw the ball into and let him operate out of the post a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't put a lot of that in in this year, but I think he's somebody who could who could be somebody like that in in addition to all the hustle plays and you know perhaps shooting shooting a few threes. But I think he's you know I think a, a, a comparison like that isn't totally incorrect i think he'll be a better version of what booker gives gives to his teams but you know i think i think something i think he's got a little more to bring to the table in terms of just a dump him the ball and let him go to work than than booker has um not totally incorrect is one of the best compliments that i have ever received so <laughs> thank you um and you know though the nets did they dumped it a lot down to booker in the post last year and he, i mean he wasn't very good he shot 50 percent in it but 111 possessions in the post so i just want to make the point for the people there who obviously haven't watched as much basketball as you that that was not an insult to john collins who according to mr frommel is the best player to come out of wake forest and has he made the point tim duncan doesn't even score anymore so yeah, the Tim Duncan isn't even on a basketball team anymore, so maybe he is the best Wake Forest player to ever come out. Right, and which is like Chris Paul hasn't even sure. made a conference finals, so like, how is he even going to be included right. on the list? Neither is John Collins, but sure, like, let's just start throwing stuff out there. Um, uh, no, go ahead. Sorry, I you know I, Collins is interesting. Like you know, we'll see what what he can do. You know, I'm not. You know, he's a rookie, so I'm not going to be high on him pretty much no matter what, but I'm like notoriously super low on all rookies. Just like until you can prove it to me on an NBA level, I'm going to just assume you're uh, a rookie. And if he drops, you know, he dropped a 19 in the draft, which, you know, he's he's come out and said like, oh, yeah, no, I should have gone top 10. I should have gone wherever. Like you like to see that kind of confidence from a guy, but I don't think that he's – I don't expect him to be a, be a – you know, a massive, he'll play a lot, but I don't think he'll be a, a real positive contributor on this team in, in terms of 
bringing value, you know, bringing positive value to the table this year. When, and it's rarely, and it, it runs into two problems as one. So I'm working on an NBA top 100 project for Bleacher Report that'll go live eventually. And it's, you don't include a bunch of rookies because aside from the number one picks and maybe the number two picks, like they're like barely ever are these guys outside of their more than, or they're not even replacement level players. And yet, when you know what we know about number one picks, where let's say Carl Anthony Towns, like he was the number one pick, and you could say when he was a rookie that he was probably better than a top 100 player, he was better than a top 50 player, and yet there, it's still so hard for me to place like a guy like Ben Simmons who has the same transcendence attached to him. And that's what's so weird with rookies. And then when you move into the guys who are deeper in the draft, like John Collins, I just don't – it's always so hard for me to get expectations for these guys, even when you're talking about um, how many minutes they're going to get, even when you think about how well – you know, John Collins is going to just run the floor and cut toward the basket, and then he's going to try and make some hustle plays on D, just block shots and maybe switch a little bit. Like, okay, that's fine. But I, I think we it, – it's just so complicated with rookies. And I've always found that fascinating because I grapple with it's not just I can't even assume like the top rookies are going to be good, even though when you look at number one picks, like, yes, there are busts. But a lot of the times, like the real good number one picks, uh, like, for instance, like the Carl Anthony Towns or uh, they're supposed to be like better than average immediately. So the rookies are just rookies are always so tough for me to, to talk about and understand and even envision how they might do. Yeah, I think Collins in particular you know, he's not, I don't think he should even sniff your top 100 list. The no, only yeah. player on this whole team who might sniff it is, is Dennis Schroeder, depending on how high you are on him. But there's nobody else on this roster that, that's even close to, to being in consideration for, for that top 100 list. And Collins certainly isn't, isn't in that list, I don't think. But, you know, and he's, you know, for all of his hustle and for all of his, you know, perhaps a little bit of switchability onto smaller guys, you're not going to put him up against bigger guys for sure. Like, so if he plays center offensively he's probably not going to be able to play center defensively at least not very well Mm -hmm. and if bud is you know really you know bud is more of a defensive coach than an offensive coach and if he can sort of get if he i think he'll see he'll try collins at the five and he'll see him just get overpowered and overrun and just get out of position on pick and roll and all sorts of stuff i mean collins is still a rookie and he wasn't particularly great defensively in college so he's not i don't i don't particularly expect expect him to be you know, a high level defender or even a below average defender, he's probably going to be pretty terrible. And so putting him at the four can, you know, can mitigate that a little bit. He can switch down, but switching up is not going to be something that, uh, that he's going to be able to do at this point. If you are interested, Dennis Schroeder did make the top 100. And if you're also interested, it killed me to not include Dwayne Dedman, who there's like the, like these, he was one of the guys that I just believed that could end up on that list, even though no one would pick him. And I ultimately just had to cut him because I couldn't do it. Yeah, I think he could be somebody who would might make a top 100 list next year based on his performance this year with consistent minutes and a you know and a, just a sort of a consistent role. You know, maybe he shoots a few more threes like we've been talking about. You know, you know there there's it wouldn't be unfathomable that he would make that list. It's not unfathomable that that Torian Prince could jump up that list if he can yeah. sort of take a few of his average skills and push them to above average. You know, now we're you know now you're you are looking at a top 100 guy. But uh, Schroeder makes, you know, I think Schroeder does make sense as sort of somewhere in that sort of 85 to 95 range. I'm not sure where you put him, but I think that's where, <laughs> where I might know? have him. Do you, do you want to know where he is? Sure, yeah. He, he was right at the end of your range. He is 96. Okay, that makes sense. Like, I'm not, I wouldn't think that that's, that's wrong in any way. I think if you have him much higher than that, then you really believe in his ability to get that shot 
or get that passing skill down or just be a more attentive, better defender. But for what he is right now, yeah, somewhere, you know, somewhere in that bottom 15 makes, makes a ton of sense. So with all of this said, the Hawks, what do you see their floor is? And it's so – I don't like doing floor and ceilings necessarily with teams that are really rebuilding because if they get a ton of wins, like that's not necessarily like a good floor, like a, like best case or worst case scenario. Like it just becomes blurred when you're trying to figure out the motives of every team. Uh, I do think the Hawks are a little bit different because I don't think they would un- like they're I don't think they're one of those teams where if we're going to see Phoenix just rest a bunch of guys and shut them down down the stretch, I don't think that Atlanta would be the type of team to do that if they are hotter than we expect. So I think this question is a little pertinent. What do you think the 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 ceiling is on on this team? That you know, best case scenario, we're not assuming you know that they trade for like this huge impact player. Like just looking at this roster where it lies, what could you see them doing uh, if if things break right for them? Especially in the wide open East, we didn't really talk about that, but the East is a shit show. Yeah, the East is terrible, and it's going to be terrible, and it's you know you, it's going to be a situation where if they, but I think I think the biggest thing instead of pulling a Phoenix and resting some of their guys down the stretch, if they get to January and they're sort of in the playoff hunt, I expect Schlank to just pull the pull the trigger on some trades, get Ilyasova out of there, get Deadman out of there, just try to. Try to do some things that would push them down the standings a little bit. Okay. You asked me to do a floor and ceiling before you know before we jumped on, and I actually reversed it. I thought I think the ceiling, the best case scenario, would be the ceiling, and that's like 24 wins and the second best lottery odds. And the floor is like 32 wins and you know pushing you know maybe 10th in the East, and all of a sudden you're looking at this like they've got a mid tier lottery pick and where you know but they're nowhere near really being a contender. So I would, I would say, I mean, I, I personally really believe like this needs to be a rebuilding year. This needs to be a year where they don't win more than 26 to 28 games and really try to get a real impact player because this, this coming draft from what I understand, and I'm not a huge college basketball or draft guy, but from what I understand, like the top four or five guys are all real impact guys. And so it's really important this year on top of the fact that the lottery odds get a lot worse in 2019 and going forward, this is the year to be really bad. And if they're anywhere near being sort of good, then Schlenk's going to start pulling triggers on, on some guys on in trades. It's an interesting dilemma when you're doing a, a floor and ceiling for this team, right? As I was like, just the, do you reverse it? Do you not reverse it? That, that's a very, like, an interesting sort of just sub-issue to those types of questions. Yeah, I mean, like, because you, you never know, like, you never know what the motives are, really. Like, if they, if they, if what they're saying publicly isn't really a smokescreen and they want to be as competitive as possible, I mean, yeah, they could win 30, 32 games and take themselves out of the top five draft picks. I hope they don't for their sake and for my sake in terms of just watching a team that eventually might be good again. You know, it would be nice to it would be nice to go through that rebuild. We've seen what it can do for a, for a team like Philly who took a bunch of stabs, at, uh, you know, a bunch of bites out of that top five apple. And now they've got, you know, a really you know, up and coming great team, you know, hopefully someday. You know, that they'll, I don't think that they're the Philly, you know, sort of as a tangent that Philly's going to be very good this year. I put a lot of money on them to miss the playoffs and to go under their 41 wins, but that's a whole nother thing. I think, but I think that's that, that sort of team building with the incentives that are currently in place. That's, you know, that should be the way that they do things. And so I, you know, hopefully Schlenk is on, on board with that. And hopefully the ownership is on board with that. I could see wrestler. With things, if things get, you know, things are going kind of well, maybe they're just below 500, you know, 40 games into the season. And Schlenk's like, hey, we, you know, 
remember we kind of wanted to to be bad this year so we can get a good draft pick and wrestlers like oh no like this team's really good what if we win the first round of the playoffs it's like I, I I worry strongly about that, but, you know, we'll see. Now, so I'll put you on the spot here a little bit because I don't normally ask for the super specific scenarios, but because it's this situation, what do you ultimately see happening with this team win-wise, placing the Eastern Conference? And if there's, you know, if it's a, you know, if you're going to say they win, let's say you're going to say they win 26 games because they're a little bit better than teams expect and then like just trades, finds a way to trade Kent Bazemore because he's one of the reasons why they're pretty good. So what do you, what is your gut? And I, again, it's it's all gut feelings here, but what are you kind of seeing as the middle ground and, and what's actually going to happen for this team? I'm, I'm probably, I think Bud will buy them more wins than, than people expect. Like he's just, he's a good coach. They're going to play hard. He's, going to come up with some crazy sideline out of bounds stuff that'll that'll net them a, a win or two here and there. So I'm looking at like 28 wins and maybe like 12th or 13th in the East, which probably will put them, you know, right about fifth in terms of lottery odds. And, you know, if, if something happens, they can, they can jump in the, into that top three, but mm-hmm. we'll see. But I think, I think I'm, I'm I think I'm going to go with, uh, with 28 wins. Do you think is Kent Bazemore on this team, but by, by the end of the trade deadline? Yes, because nobody else will trade for him. Fair enough. Um, at who? I guess the last, the real last question would be: Who? Which teams are actually worse than them? Like that we know they're going to be worse than them in the East. I still, th- I still, th- I know people are like on the Nets train. I still think the Nets uh, could be worse than. Uh, I, I go back and forth with them. They're going to be super fun to watch. But I think you could probably come up with between two and four teams that you know are going to be worse than the Hawks. Like I'm not sure if it's basically the Knicks, the Nets, and the. I, like the magic at this point, like those are maybe the only three contenders. And I'm, I'm with you. I don't think Philadelphia is going to hit their 41 wins either, by the way. So they, could... yeah, but I don't think they're, I don't think Philly's going to be so bad that they're going to be in this no, conversation. I think, I think, the three... I think Chicago, oh, Orlando, Brooklyn, you know, maybe is, are, are below the Hawks in terms of talent and coaching and sort of what that can, what that can do for a winning team. But, you know, some of those teams are, are looking to try to win. Orlando has, has a little bit of a core that they'd like to move forward with. Brooklyn, of course, would you know like to turn around their franchise at some point in the future. And you know, between Chicago and Atlanta, I think those are the the tanktastic teams that would would start trading guys off, would start sitting guys to to try to improve their draft their draft position. I hope. Well, there you have it. Um, I, this was great. I appreciate you giving us so much of your time because we went over what is the normal podcast here. But the Hawks again are a fascinating team to me. So we want to thank Jeff for being just so generous, giving us more than an hour to rap about what's going to happen in Atlanta this season. Uh, if you want to follow him on Twitter and you should, especially because he's, he's deeply into the salary cap, which is going to help you when we start talking about off season scenarios and most certainly in the off season, when you're trying to figure out if your favorite, favorite team has the space or the, the resources to sign a big name player. So he's great there too. follow him at, jg siegel that's j-g-s-i-e-g-e-l he is a writer again at the step back and for peachtree hoops definitely check out his stuff his insight on the hawks is top notch uh if you want to get at me on twitter i'm at dan favale that's f-a-v-a-l-e you can follow andy bailey even though he abandoned you tonight at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled exactly like it sounds. Please follow MBA Math at MBA underscore math. You can find at Hardwood Knox, where where we're there too. And as always, I encourage you guys to 
uh, leave us a rating to subscribe and leave us a review even if it's a mean one we just like hearing from people so there will be no shout out to Buna Udre tonight because Andy is not here until next time hi it's Jamie progressives employee of the month two months in a row leave a message at the Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.